Welcome to episode four of the Juke Pod. I'm Mitch, of course, joined by the one and only Dr. Jen Welter. And we are here to break down some football. But at the start, we need to give you some headlines. What's been going on in the crazy world of the NFL, Jen? Since you like the Patriots, and you're a Patriot, I know you got Marino in the background today. That threw me off a little bit. But yeah. I heard something very interesting on your re-signed quarterback, Cam Newton. It is that Cam Newton is reportedly starting a show with BET called Sip and Smoke. Now, my question is, would you prefer to see that show on BET or would you like to see Cam Newton pass and run on the New England Patriots? This is the thing about Cam. If you like Cam, you like all of Cam. And that means the personality in and out of football. And for me, I definitely was interested in watching that show when I heard it was going down because I'm a fan of the personality of Cam as well as the football player. And I think this is another outlet for him to see it. Yeah, so I'm going to be tuning in for sure. But I'm not sure if I'm a Patriots fan that I want him smoking and sipping before games. So my next headline was when Heineke said that he is ready for, you know, an exciting competition with Fitzmagic. So all I picture is, is it Fitzmagic pulling tricks out of his beard and the rest of us kicked back with Heineken as we watch who will emerge from the Heineken Fitzmagic battle? Where do you fall? I don't know how you can beat a literal magician. He's pulling everything out of his hat. Maybe you give him a lot of Heinekens before the competition. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe, maybe, maybe he goes on, hold on, sip and smoke with Cam Newton prior to the competition and he sips on Heinekens and then Heineke slips by. I see some cross advertising. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. we should get those two to hook up, but I think with Fitzmagic, he's the magic man that's literally been reverse aging at this point as a quarterback. So I don't know which one's younger right now. That's a good point. He does seem to reverse age. Now, speaking of magic, there's been this combine drill that keeps coming up. And I can only picture in my mind that there is an invisible enemy, that they are running around and then trying to go straight like Are we doing a bat race with an imaginary bat? Is there a bee chasing people? And what exactly would they be attempting to ascertain by this interesting new draft phenomenon? So I think this drill would be way more interesting if they actually had a fly swatter in their hand and we were just releasing flies and they were just having to run around and just swat them down and see their actual hand-eye coordination. Because- Swatting a fly takes some hand-eye coordination. It does. I mean, it kind of reminds me of like the bat races that you used to have to do where you had to do all of the circles around the bat and they would try and see if you could still run straight, right? Because obviously they're trying to maintain that straight line running. I've seen it before where it was a DB drill and you pretend like somebody's pressing you and then you rip your shoulder and you run, right? Going from a back pedal to forward. But this one... I'm going to have to be coachable on this and see what exactly they wanted me to learn. I think it had something to do with the hips, but I'm lost. So it's like Shakira all in there. Hips don't lie. So we're going to say hips don't lie by Shakira. We'll call it the Shakira drill and keep it moving. So my last 
headliner would be the tattoo battle that emerged on the Buccaneers battleships that apparently started with BA's promise that he would get a tattoo if they won the Super Bowl. And then Tom Brady responded. What do you think about the tattoo battle, Mitch? I think when you have a tattoo that is that fake from Tom Brady, I think Bruce might have been outdone by the GOAT. But I just love Bruce Arians saying he's going to get a tattoo when he wins the Super Bowl, winning the Super Bowl, and then getting the tattoo. I mean, is there a better story than that in the NFL? Well, it falls right in line with his no risk it, no biscuit mantra, right? He says no risk it, and he put it out there. And, you know, clearly the TBD was determined to have, you know, BAT, Bruce Arians tattoo at bat. Now, there is a deeper narrative, though, that we must reassess because with you, it always goes back to New England and the Patriots. And I'm curious, does Dollar Dollar Bill have to up his tattoo game and come at back at B.A.? I think Bill Belichick's a little busy right now. We see pictures of him. We see videos of him chatting it up with Kyle Shanahan. But they were watching all the quarterbacks and chatting it up. And I think he's a little busy right now, but maybe he'll get a tattoo of Kyle Shanahan. So those are the headlines. And speaking of Kyle Shanahan, I don't know if you heard, but he kind of did something a little bit bold this past week. He made a trade. The San Francisco 49ers have traded the 12th overall pick this season, two first round picks in 2022 and 2023 a third round pick in 2022, and they were able to move up for the number three overall selection with Miami. Now, the Eagles were also involved in this because Miami wanted to move back up, which I think they're trying to get a receiver, move back up to the sixth pick in the draft. What are your thoughts on this trade? Just your first sense. Obviously, San Francisco is not trading all this capital if they're not picking a quarterback. Who do you think wins this trade? The Niners, Miami, or maybe even the Eagles? Mitch Trubinsky. Mitch Trubinsky? Mitch Trubinsky. I mean, you know, think about when the Bears picked him over Patrick Mahomes. Oh, right? that's where you're going with this. Right, I'm okay. going with this, right? Like, what are we doing? First of all, actually, my thought when I read this was, if you are Jimmy G, you're going, oh, gee willikers. Oh, this doesn't look good for me. Hey, yeah. Bill? Bill, where you at? Bill, Bill don't you miss me? Because it does not speak volume well it does speak volumes as to if they feel that jimmy g is the future of the franchise right like i'm not feeling really confident if i am him so i'm on the phone with my agent like yo this doesn't look good for me right but i do agree with your your instincts that they have to be in the quarterback market with that move because other than mitch Kierbenski, who would you pick up and give that much for but who do you think goes to number three right now? Because we've heard some interesting quarterback assessment lately. Yeah, there's kind of like two camps out there. There's the Mac Jones hype. And a lot of that has stemmed from the fact that everybody thinks they're Kyle Shanahan's best friend. So basically people on Twitter are like tweeting, you know, Kyle had Kirk Cousins and Matt Ryan and Mac Jones is kind of the same quarterback. So therefore he's going to pick Mac Jones. And then there's the other camp that's saying, well, no, you know, Jimmy G is kind of like Jones. So like, why would they pick him? It's not really much of an upgrade. So let's go with the athletic guy. Let's go with 
Justin Fields, because I think Wilson is probably going to end up to the Jets at number two. It says a lot about the Jets because I think they could have got the number two pick if the Jets were invested in Sam Darnold. Okay, so they had to get to number three because the Jets probably told them who also have a relationship with the Niners because their new head coach is Robert Sala, who's the defensive coordinator. So they probably were on the phone and saying, yeah, we're picking Wilson. Like you can have the number three. So who won the trade? It really depends on who the Niners pick. It really comes down to that. There's no answer right now, but I will say this as somebody that's not the biggest Tua guy in the world. I feel like Miami might be back in a situation where they're picking a quarterback in two years and they might've missed an opportunity. How many draft picks was that? Double, triple, quadruple down on Tua, right? By getting out of that pick. They said, we're not putting a quarterback at the highest priority. We think, you know, we need picks in the future. Cool. Or like, you know, now and more to fill in some of these holes. So yeah, Sam Darnold and Jimmy G are in the club of what are we going to do? Where am I going? What is my future? And I don't think Shanahan wants Jimmy G 2.0. Sam Darnold. Jimmy Garoppolo, we've mentioned them already. These two guys, I feel, are NFL starters. And Jimmy G has proven himself, you know, taking a team to the Super Bowl as the quarterback. Sam Darnold obviously was a high draft pick a few years ago, who still has plenty of potential and still is very young and has been in a bad situation with New York. So I think they're both worth taking a little bit of a chance on in a trade for a quarterback needy team. Which teams do you see? If you were them, you would get on the phone and you would want Jimmy G or Sam Darnold. I mean, I feel bad for Sam Darnold, right? Like the Jets have just been tough and there was a win situation for him with the Jets. Jimmy G, I almost feel like he needs to go back to Bill B. I don't think that obviously we're going to see him there with longevity with all that pick towards the movement. So you need somebody who's going to build an organization really around you. And the organization that we've seen that really builds around people is back in New England. So I I don't know what that says about, you know, sip and smoke with Cam Newton. But um, if I'm on the phone, that's an interesting conversation. Where else do we have that needs quarterbacks right now, though? We need someone in Carolina, right? So that's one of their big needs. We need somebody in Denver. Those are two of the ones that stand out to me. If you were those guys and maybe those were your two options, where would you think would fit? Oh, if I was picking between those two, as much as I like some of the skill on Carolina offensively, wide receiver, running back, Denver is legitimately a quarterback away from being a contender. Like they feel like Tampa Bay last year, where it was like, if you put Tom Brady on this team, they're going to be really, really good because they have everything else. Denver, I think if with a Garoppolo, with a Darnold, Drew Locke has had his moments, but he doesn't really feel like the guy. I honestly do like Sam Darnold in Denver, just from within the Shermer offense. I feel like he fits. And then all those playmakers around him, I feel he could get the ball to them. I like Darnold there probably more so. Jimmy Garoppolo, I wouldn't mind Carolina, but like, what's the difference here if you're Carolina between Teddy and Jimmy really like they feel like they're the same tier are you willing to give something up now like I felt like they were in for Stafford they were in for Watson they were in for these bigger names potentially maybe even in the draft they'll try to trade up but I don't think they're in for the mid-tier guy right so let's say we go Darnold Denver where's Jimmy G I ultimately think Jimmy Garoppolo will remain in San Francisco for this season because I think 
with Kyle Shanahan's offense, as complex as it is, and as many things as he does, I do think he does like to have that veteran, at least to the point where you're going to have another guy, he's going to hand it off to the rookie. The other thing with Jimmy too, is like, he's been injury prone more so than being bad. Like he's been decent when he's been in. So give him the chance early on, let the kids sit underneath him and then ultimately take over, I think might be the strategy. Another piece of news happened. The NFL officially announced that they are going to a 17 game season, a 17 game schedule, essentially. So they're reducing the preseason to three games. I believe their plan is to have 18 weeks where the 18th week is treated almost like a mini playoffs and 17 games, which obviously it's been 16 for a very long time. As long as I can remember before that, it was 14 way back, I think in the seventies. So what are your thoughts just as a coach, as a player, like the grind that that 17 game season may have on them? Number one, players don't get paid for preseason games. If you're going to ask them to play 17 games now instead of 16, what would be fair is currently basically their salaries are like if it was $16 million, they get a game check with each game. You're going to get a lot of pushback if that $16 million is now divided over 17 games, right? So do they get an incremental basically raise per having that game because then players would probably be okay with it. But if now we're playing more real games, which means more starters in because the fourth preseason game has notoriously been, you don't know anybody who's playing, right? And now that 16 games or 16 million is divided over 17 games. Yeah, you're going to have players pretty mad. And I do think as you expand it, we've also expanded playoffs, right? Like now you're really making the season longer, So how are you going to maintain that for the players? And that might mean a situation where the Super Bowl has to get pushed back a week. Are we building in more bye weeks? Because apples for apples, you could say it's the same in terms of, you know, it's the same number of games, but the impact, especially on starters, is not the same because most of them you would never catch in a fourth preseason game anyway. Um, And if you did, it might be like one series. So now you're asking them to play a serious game as opposed to like chill and watch the rookies do it. I think this was huge for the NFL because obviously they have broadcast fees that need to happen and rights that will be divided. So them being able to add another game to this schedule is huge for them. That's a big reason they expanded the playoffs to have more games in the wild card because they're like, look, we got more games going on now. So more money is good for the league. It's also good for the players because they're going to make more money ultimately. Now it might hurt their health because I do think the NFL is ultimately going to want to push to 18 games. Like I really do. When we look at it for me as a fan, There's a lot of exciting matchups that wouldn't have happened otherwise. And then you throw in the fact that, okay, you know, fantasy football is going to be one week longer. My ability to talk about these games with friends is going to be a little bit longer. We get another week of football. It's all great from a fan perspective. More from Mitch and Jen. More more joke. I mean, whatever. It's a bounty, right? In that capacity. We have some awesome matchups. The Packers at the Chiefs. I mean, Rodgers and Mahomes. That's awesome. We have Stafford and the Rams now versus Lamar Jackson and the Ravens. We have the Cardinals and the Browns, the Seahawks and the Steelers. And my favorite one, Jen, is, of course, my Patriots taking on 
the Dallas Cowboys. And it's my favorite because that's my dad's team. And typically we only see our teams play every four years. So now we get to see them. We were actually at the game two years ago. Now we get to see them two times over the last three years. Which one of those matchups excites you? Obviously, I'm on the Patriots and the Cowboys. Yeah, this season, what do I want to see? I want to see more, more Mahomie, more Rogers, because it's like the State Farm matchup, right? Like, isn't that what they, isn't that their insurance company? So like, yeah, I can already picture the catch-up commentary coming from them. Like, you know, Mahomes in the background of their commercial, just putting that catch-up on the stake. Like, I still want to figure out what shade he was throwing with the catch-up. If that was throwing towards, you know, San Francisco didn't have a lot of catch-up and he had all of it or if he was throwing shade at the Steelers because they are Heinz Field. But I see some direct goatness, like young Mahomie goat, Rogers goat. I can see this being an ongoing commentary with their commercials. And then you also have, you know, Drake from State Farm now. So there can even be a theme there. But that's the one that I think is just, you know, a quarterback's best and a fun one to watch. Finishing with this. Jeopardy, Aaron Rodgers. Speaking of him, he'll be hosting the show for two weeks, April 5th to Monday, April 12th. What do you think? It makes me a little fearful of the like retirement narrative because Mm. we were all seeing like Drew Brees going to do commentary as soon as he steps off of quarterbacking. And is this Rodgers positioning himself for life after football or is he just a super jeopardy fan like I would not have put them together unless it was Aaron Rodgers with no receivers the season is in jeopardy right like why have we put them together and where did this this offseason move come from so you're right I think he's a big jeopardy fan I think he's actually been on the show before if I'm not mistaken and I just look at it I actually really like the fit for him if he's trying to get into TV or whatever, because he's kind of got that like wit and like slight arrogance to him where like as a host, it could come across as like really funny, like him commenting on certain things, I think would be like comical. So I'm actually really into this Aaron Rodgers on Jeopardy. Our kick glass moment of the week is actually a kick glass interview. Brittany Donaldson, NBA champion. What's going on? Hey, Mitch. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. I was so pumped when Jen asked me to come on. So excited to get started. To me, this is a females kicking glass, taking names, coaching men, family reunion. And I got to say, I love imagining when people see you coming, they're like, oh no, that's the face of nightmares. Cause we know <laughs> coach Brittany Donaldson has our number. That's right, y'all. If you didn't know, this is the woman who has a fantastic statistical understanding of the game. So not only did she play, but she knows the game within the game and how to put the numbers on it for you. I wanna correlate the numbers to the players and how you coach players based on the analytics or the information, what are you teaching them and showing them in order to get the best out of their game? 
Number one for me, I consider myself to be a basketball coach and a basketball guru, not a numbers analytics guru, right? Like right. I, I sometimes get that title of like, well, she's the numbers girl, you know, whatever. And I feel honored that people uh, think of me in that light. But honestly, like that's just another tool I have on top of my basketball experience, my basketball knowledge. So I always lead with that first, my basketball experience, my basketball expertise and relate to the players on that level first. And players are really intuitive. They've been doing this a long time. They know the game really, really well. I feel like my job from an analytics numbers standpoint is just to kind of verify their intuition. I think when I approach it that way, the players are really, really receptive to it. It's when, you know, people <laughs> that have analytics backgrounds come with the analytics first and like bombard players with numbers first that right. they completely just tune you out. So it's a bit of a balancing act. Like I'd say knowing how to interpret the data and understand the data is only half of the job. The other half of the job is like communicating it and gaining that level of trust in order to communicate it and communicate it properly in a way that players understand. I got to ask her something real quick. Okay. <laughs> Jen's fired up. Jen's fired Look, up. I'm fired up on this because I just want one translation point that I think is so powerful. Coach, I often have people say, we could get you more data if we did X. And my pushback to them is the data is only as good as your ability to use it and to translate it. And um, because I think you're so spot on that it gets lost a lot of the times. Like there are numbers for days and those numbers would add up to nothing or less than nothing or negative zero or 20,000, depending on how you interpret it. So I just loved how you really encapsulated them because people get really fascinated by numbers, but if we're not interpreting them the right way, they just become noise. Yeah, I think it's really important to have the perspective of the player looking at those numbers because you understand what's doable, what's not doable when you're on the court, right? So my question was, have you had a specific example or story of helping a player using analytics to get their game at the next level? There's quite a few. I would say one that was most exciting to me, especially early on in my career working with the Raptors, because it was one of my first times, you know, I, I supported the coaching staff a lot when I was on the analytics team and didn't have a ton of like direct communication with the players. Like I was around them and whatnot, but I wasn't on the coaching staff yet. So I actually got a request directly from a player as I was sitting in the analytics office, like in the front office, which was like unheard of for me. And so I was like, and it was Fred Van Bleet, and it was early in his career too. And he was injured. I think it was three or four years ago. He, he was injured for a span of months and was sitting out and was just like itching to, to get back. And like he wanted to learn during that time. He wanted to watch his film and analyze his game. And so he, he messaged me out of the blue and was like, hey, is there anything you can give me as far as like maybe my shot selection or what's working for me? What's not like anything at all that you can give me from a number standpoint that I can look into? And I was so excited, but the first thing I made sure to do was not just send him a spreadsheet of numbers. I sent him a video package and then attached numbers to the video package. And he loved it, man. He, he, he had follow-up questions. He applied what I'd said to his workouts when he was working his way back. And it was just little things, right? It wasn't anything like extravagant, but just a little bit of extra information to help him direct his focus. Um, he really appreciated it's so wonderful when the, the numbers are a part of the story. That's what I always used to say. I'm like, even like in football, how you start your breakdown determines what information you'll get. 
right? Like uh, on one team I was on, you could tell that they hadn't played the games as much because they would just look at formations first. For me, I always watch the game first, right? To see how it develops. And then it's like, okay, when we break it down, you're looking at it. And, you know, certain teams will change their formations that they run things out of each game so that those season analytics don't seem to tell a story. So if you didn't watch the actual game, what you saw on the numbers would translate to absolutely nothing. And so it's got to be this intuitive storytelling mechanism that you're backing up with numbers. And I just think that your ability to do both is where your brilliance is. And speaking of brilliance, I know that you got to be with the G League team. Can you tell us a little bit about coaching the G League, what you thought was different and kind of how you saw that that season? Yeah, absolutely. It was uh, so we ended up having a G League bubble for about 50 days was about the the span of time. It was um, 15 regular season games and then a three game playoff series. So it was very short. It it wasn't a typical G League season, which is part of the reason I I did it was because it was kind of this thrown together thing in the middle of the NBA season that they're like asking G League teams and franchises like, hey, you guys want to do this? If so, let us know. So um, it was an opportunity for me to go and, and coach in a way I hadn't coached yet. And with the Raptors, you know, my first year on the coaching staff, I sat behind the bench and I was pretty involved in like player development and more so things to prepare the players and the coaches for the game and then analyze how we did after the game. But during the game, I didn't have many direct responsibilities, which is what a lot of backbench coaches, that's kind of their experience. Um, They're more hands-on with the players, like one-on-one workouts and putting together development plans and all that. But as far, and they help out with the game plan, but they're not like, creating the game plan, presenting the game plan in the game, like making adjustments, executing on it. And that's what I got to do in the G League, which was really, really fun. Um, So it was a very different coaching experience. You know, in this role, I was putting together scouting reports, full scout plans for games. I was presenting film to the team. I was out in practice, like running the team through drills. I was putting in plays, you know, all these things that I hadn't gotten to do before by myself independently with the Raptors. You know, I was supporting the coaches in those things and I was giving my input, but I wasn't the one out there doing it. So really, really valuable experience for me. Um, We had two players get called up to 10 day contracts in the NBA um, during that time. So yeah, it was a success all around for sure. You have that swag and obviously now you're you're back with the Raptors and, and you kind of have done double duty, which just speaks to how multifaceted and wonderful you are. But the Raptors actually did a pretty kick glass thing the other day and they had an old female broadcast team. How did that feel for you being the female of the Raptors and, and to know that, you know, it's hard sometimes as a coach, you can, you can be a little bit on an island, but certainly in that day you weren't and you were surrounded. So can you take me through how that felt to you? I was so excited. I know all five of them personally, Kayla, Kate, Amy, Megan, Kia, like they're all stars. They're superstars. I have a story about Megan in particular who did Megan McPeak. She did the play-by-play. She's been doing play-by-play at the professional level for like 11 years now. Like (laughs) she's been doing it. And and I remember like when I first got here, I got introduced to Megan because she was doing play-by-play for the 905, our G League team. And she was the only female in the G League doing it. And I got to know Megan really well. And I just remember her telling me, like, even still, after doing it for seven years, 
she was still like grinding it out for herself. She, she'd record herself over games that she'd tape on TV and then just send that to like anybody and everybody who would take it and try and get to try and get a job. She wanted a job in the NBA and she was doing it all herself without any help. And I was so, so when she like got to do that game, I was just like, man, like she's been grinding. Like I've seen it. She's like so good at her job and, and they all are. I mean, John Wiggins, who we hired um, to be our director of equity, inclusion, diversity, He's just done a fantastic job. Like he had the, the vision for this. He was the one that had the idea to do this. And it takes somebody like him to have that sort of vision for something like that to be done. And so I applaud him. I applaud all those girls. It was the highlight of my year for sure. I was like so, so excited to watch. And I think it's, it's a rare opportunity that I get to watch our games on TV. Like, and I'm just in a situation now where I was able to watch it on TV and experience that. Um, like I wanted to. So I just, I felt really grateful and, and proud of all of them. It's so amazing. And you touched on something that I know I personally speak to a lot and that's the importance of having allies who are in that position that can use their position to be instigators for change. And obviously you've had quite a few. Is there anybody that you would, you would really shout out who, who kind of was that for you? I wouldn't be here today if I didn't have my allies along the way. And that's even from the very beginning before I even knew working in the NBA was possible. I was working at a sports data provider called Stats in Chicago, and I was crunching numbers and building reports for NBA teams. But actually working for an NBA team, I had never thought of. It just wasn't <laughs> a visual like possibility for me. And it was my boss at that company that approached me and was like, hey, have you ever considered this? And I was like, well, no, <laughs> you know, he's like, well, why not? And he pushed me in that direction um, because I think he saw something in me that I didn't quite see in myself yet. And so I needed that. I needed that encouragement, that push. And, you know, there were several others along the way. But even when I got to the Raptors, you know, Masai Ujiri giving me the opportunity, continuing to put me in places that I never intended to be a coach. <laughs> um, it wasn't until he and Bobby Webster in management put that idea in my head. <laughs> that I really started to consider it. And that's what it takes. I mean, some people know exactly what they wanna do their whole life and I've never been that person. I've been this like, I have all these things I wanna do. You know, like I, I, I can't, I don't have like a one track mind. I have like a bunch of different interests and passions. And so sometimes I need a little bit of, you know, no, try this, you, you can do this and a little push in that direction. And that's what I got. And I feel really grateful. I remember hearing that from you and from your lips and seeing the, the passion, you know, at that panel in Ryerson. And I was like, oh yeah, it's my kind of people right here. And I think one of the things that we've connected on is also maybe we didn't see it, but because of that, we've really taken steps to be people that others can see it in and they could maybe see themselves in. And that's one of the things I've always loved about you is your willingness to, you know, go with your own style, be something, you know, someone and something that other girls would aspire to be. What does that mean to you? I think in our line of work, it can be easy to fall victim to assimilation or like feeling like you have to fit in or have to coach like the guys do or, or talk and dress and whatever, like the guys do. And, and I think having the boldness and the self-assurance and the confidence to just be authentic and be yourself is really valuable because especially in coaching, like players 
see right through the BS. If you're not being yourself, like, or if you're trying to be something you're not, they tune you out in a second. So I think just being authentic and doing a lot of work to get to know who you are and what you stand for. And then um, displaying that on a daily basis is something, you know, I try to do. Is there a particular instance that you could give, you know, kind of that being a female coaching guys, which a lot of people still really have problems seeing newsflash. Most of them have been coaching, been being coached by women their whole lives, maybe just not in football. Do you have maybe an instance like that, uh, that you could share? Yeah. I mean, you kind of just mentioned it. A lot of our players were coached by their moms, like actually coached in basketball by their moms growing up. And that became evident to me um, because they shared that with me. They're like, this brings me back. Like I used to be coached by my mom and like they, they loved being coached by their mom. They, it, it was funny. It was actually one of my assistant coaches brought it up to me one time. We had one player who uh, was a little defiant to most coaches and, and a little bit tough to direct at times. And, but to me, he was always very receptive. And one of our coaches came up to me. He's like, do you know why that is? And I was like, no, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to be the most authentic like coach I can be and get to know him. And he brought to my attention that, well, he never really had a father figure in his life and his mom raised him and, and coached him until he was in high school. And I think like this, it's comforting for him, you know, like he, he's receptive to it in that way. And so it just kind of opened my eyes to this whole other, and I knew I never had a problem interacting with the guys or gaining their respect, but I didn't like understand why all the time. Cause I knew there was probably some presumption that there would be a little pushback, but there never was. So that's part of it. I think, like you mentioned, a lot of these guys, you know, whether it was coaching sports or whether it was teachers they had, or they've had like female leaders in their lives. And it's not this new phenomena that they just don't know how to act. It's like, like we mentioned before, if we lead with authenticity, they know why we're there. We're there to make them better. We're there because we love the sport. We've been in their shoes to some capacity. Um, we can empathize with them. We care about them as people. And that's something I'm really intentional about is, you know, I try to get to know them. I try to deliver it time outside of practice to get to know them. And I even like interweave it, you know, if we're on the court, we're just like shooting hoops, I'm rebounding, I'm passing like, like, Hey, how's your sister? Like, how's your daughter doing? You know, just little questions like that. And it, it goes a really long ways and it's not anything revolutionary, right? It's just being a human being and having empathy and um, caring about people outside of what their stats say. Um, but it really does. It goes a long ways. I actually heard Bruce Arians talk about this with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, where it was like, I try to have as many different types of people on my coaching staff to relate to the players, but also to help me as well. So maybe talk about that within basketball and how that helps a team become a better team. Yeah, different perspectives is so crucial. I mean, no matter where you are, sports or not, um, coaching or not, it's so crucial. I mean, in order to make an informed decision about anything, like having as much information as possible from as many different places as possible. And this is my data brain talking, but <laughs> that's, that's what you want, right? That's how you make an optimal decision. Um, and having leaders in place that value that sort of diversity or that sort of differences in perspectives and backgrounds and experiences is crucial. Um, having leaders that just want everybody like them that think the same, that are yes men, yes women, that's not going to get you very far. So we need people that have different perspectives and can adapt, that have range, that have a range of experiences so that you can pull from those experiences and not just the one thing you know how to do. 
it's crucial, especially in an ever-changing, ever-evolving environment. Having been a basketball player and being a woman who has both played in the women's realm and seen it, with what just happened with Sedona Prince and her shedding a light on the inequity between the women's game and the men's game in March Madness, how did that impact you? I was outraged. <laughs> I was upset, but I was not surprised. Um, like you mentioned, I'd lived that. That's just one drop in the bucket of all the inequalities that we experience as women playing sports. It was important. Like I'm, I'm really proud of those players and the coaches that spoke up because I think for so long, we were just conditioned to be satisfied with just being there in the first place. So now that we're taking steps towards speaking out on, no, we're not just happy to be here. We're not just happy to have the crumbs. Like we want the whole thing and more and we deserve it. <laughs> That's so important. And it, it really hit a chord with me because of everything I experienced playing in the NCAA and to see that it's still happening to the same degree with Title IX in place, like in the middle of this year that we're really trying to progress and, and make change, like it's still happening to that degree. It was just incredibly disappointing. But at the same time, it's good to shed light on it because it's, it's time to change it and make it better. And in order to do that, we need to continue to talk about it. If you could wave a magic wand to that change, what would that look like to you? Oh, I, don't, I could write a book on this <laughs> and I probably will at some point. I just want it to stop being a conversation. I just want it to be normalized and there doesn't need to be a distinction between the two. There doesn't need to be compartmentalized like anything about it. We're all athletes. We're all coaches. We're all whatever it is. I guess in short, that's what I would want. Yeah, I found even the explanation disconcerting, right? Like, oh, we didn't talk about it. I'm like, really? Because you had two bubbles with needs. Why were you having separate conversations about getting those needs fulfilled, right? Like, hey, guess what? This is what we need for a weight room for this many people for this much time. This is the equipment that we need. Now, where are we going to source it from? And isn't it more efficient even to, you know, have those sourcing conversations that already start from a place of we need this twice but you did twice the work to treat them differently right and even if you would have taken that one weight room that the guys had and split it in two it would have been pretty doable right but yeah. yet we started from a place that they're not the same and we're not going to treat them the same and then we get surprised when the outcome is different that to me was like we're so flawed in our logic from the jump, it's no wonder that these things continue. Yeah, it's, we're being reactive about these, these issues and we're not being proactive. And that narrative needs to flip and you kind of just hit on it, but everything that stems from patriarchy and misogyny, it's not only harmful to women, it's really harmful to men too. It's harmful for everybody. <laughs> and so we need to shed light on that. And um, it's not just women fighting for equality, it's, it's better for, the whole of the human race if we are just you know more intentional about treating everybody equally absolutely mitch do you have anything else i 
want to get into Mitch's minute. That's what I want to do. Ooh, what is Mitch's minute? <laughs> yes, Brittany, you will love Mitch's minute. I had a feeling that's why I wanted to make sure. What Mitch Mitch's minute is, is I give you five questions. It never lasts a minute, but the name is just the name, okay? Five questions, rapid fire style, and you have to give me your quick reaction. Oh boy. Okay, well, I'm a thinker and I think slowly, but I'll do my best. <laughs> Question number one. Now we are an NFL podcast, so I thought I would ask you, do you have a favorite NFL team or maybe a player that you admire? I grew up watching Dan Marino, which is funny because you have the jersey. <laughs> I mean, I'm not lying. That was my guy and that was my team. Um, so I'm going to say the Dolphins. <laughs> awesome. That I picked the right jersey then. <laughs> yeah. Number two, what was your reaction to Kyle Lowry staying with the Raptors? Heck yeah. I'll keep him as long as I want. Yeah. <laughs> keep him as long as we can. Number three, the biggest difference between the men's basketball game and the women's basketball game. Can I be honest? <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, preparation and execution. Okay, can you expand on that if you mind? Uh, to me, I think the women's game spends more time in prepping and executing on that preparation. The men's game sometimes it seems can get a little bit enamored by raw talent and athleticism and highlight reels. So um, I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm speaking in generalities. Obviously there's uh, exceptions to this, but overall that's something I observe. From the outside perspective, I would say that the men's game is kind of more individual driven and the women's game is more team driven, but that's just my opinion. Number four, favorite stat that you ever came across with a player or a team? Like you were just looking at it like, what is this? Oh man, favorite stat? Or just a crazy stat that you couldn't believe. <laughs> Are we talking about basketball stats? <laughs> Any stat. Oh, uh, I read this one the other day. I think 96% of C-suite level females played sports growing up. So 96% of women who hold CEO, COO, CFO positions played sports growing up. I thought that was a staggering stat. Final question. One-on-one -on -one ISO, what is the move? Last play of the game. Yeah, I'm a step back between the legs person. I like to, I like to play the mental game. I like to like have counter moves and I like to think that I can make the defense do what I want and then counter that with another move. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not like short bursts of speed, get by somebody but I can, uh, I can play the mind game and get you to do what I want. <laughs> awesome. All right, that is Mitch's Minute and that is Brittany Donaldson. Jen, wrap it up. I will, because I have one question that usually is my football question. So Brittany, I talk about FBI, which is football IQ. One of my favorite questions to ask coaches and players is, is there a favorite key you ever picked up on reading another player or another team, you were like, oh yeah, I got your number and this is what it is. Oh yeah, I mean, when I played, it was everything from, oh, this person, they just wanted block shots. They just want to block shots. Like every time you shot fake, they're gonna jump, fouling them out of the game by like the third quarter because I knew that, you know? Or, oh man, like offensively, there was always something like, if somebody looked at the line, they were gonna pull up and shoot it. Like they could be dancing with it, dancing with it. But if they looked at the line, they were going to stop and shoot it. 
So little stuff like that, you definitely pick up on like as you're watching film, as you're playing, like, like I said, we're intuitive, <laughs> like we know. Um, and a lot of that stuff doesn't show up in data or in stats. Like you can't, you can't be given that information um, with numbers. It's something you have to observe and analyze yourself. So yeah, I love that stuff. Well, I must say this is quite possibly one of my, my favorite conversations and certainly my favorite kick glass conversation because though we might be in different sports, I think we have very similar spirits and everything do I want you to know that you have a sister that you know you can call every time. And I just wanna thank you for opening up and sharing just the wonderful person that you are with everybody listening and, and giving those insights because I know I could sit and listen to them all day. Oh man, well, I want to echo all those sentiments and just say having somebody like you to follow in your footsteps and see what you've done and be able to literally just pick up the phone and call you at any moment. Like you don't know how much that means and how grateful and special that is to me. So thank you. I'm so happy we've crossed paths and it was a pleasure being on the podcast. Anytime. You've got me. I'll let you go. Yes, sir. Episode number four of The Juke. If you enjoyed, make sure you do. If it's on YouTube, give us a like, subscribe. If you're listening to this, make sure you give us a follow, rate us, let us know how you feel, get in the comments. If we could do anything better, if you wanna see anything, or if you want us to talk about anything, let us know in the comment section. We want the feedback for sure. Also, make sure you do follow us on social media, Instagram, at the Juke Pod, Twitter, TikTok, where we're putting out some content. So check us out. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. And from Jen and Mitch, we'll see you later. Peace.